Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Uh, This morning we're going to look at uh, all of chapter 11 and the first eight verses of chapter 12. Which is perhaps on the edge, on the verge of uh, too long to stand as we read. However, uh, we will attempt it. If you're able, let me ask that you stand as we read God's word together. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth. And the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near. Of which you will say I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. And the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble. And the strong men are bent. And the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high. And terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself Along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it vanity of vanity says the preacher all is vanity the grass withers The flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. So over the last uh, week, our 12 and a half year old yellow lab, Jasper, uh, has begun um, showing more obvious signs of his age than he already was. Um, 
the reality is last Saturday he went upstairs to the bonus room and came back down again and was fine. And on Sunday he was not fine. And so over this last week we've watched him trying to figure out, you know, where is he? I mean, he's 12 and a half years old. And, and in human years, that's pushing 90. And it's sparked some family group texts about just age in general and, and growing older. And the realization that for Jasper, his new normal is not the same as it was just four or five years ago. I pointed out to our family little group text. I mean, I'm, I'm pushing 50, and I can't do the things I could do when I was 20. One time in college, as a 20-year-old, I went out and ran a 10K without any training or prep and ran nine-minute miles because I was just that active in college as it was. I'm not even sure I could run half a K all of a sudden like that today. The reality is... We all kind of recognize that our bodies are growing older, that we're getting further and further, as my dad would say, from the factory. I've been away from the factory too long and things are starting to break and the warranty's gone bad and things of that sort. We look back on our younger years and we call them our glory days. Back in my glory day, Bruce Springsteen even sang a song about it. All the great and wonderful things we could do back when we were young that we can't do anymore. But when we, when we describe our older years, we use words like twilight and sunset and, and we allude to, to light dimming, whether it means our eyes are growing dimmer and dimmer and we need glasses or whether it's sort of the sunset of our lives nearing death itself. We know these days are coming. If the Lord doesn't return first, if death doesn't come uh, beforehand, we know that older years are coming. And you can hear the language of the preacher in this passage as he uses the language of dimness and darkness. The idea of growing older has been hanging over his head the entire book, and he's been afraid of it. He's not wanted to face that reality. He's actually been scared of old age. And he sees old age in many ways as an enemy. And you read the first seven verses of chapter 12 and you realize, I don't know if you notice this or not, but it's one long sentence. It's all one sentence. And you get this sense of, especially if you, as you look at the metaphors and the, the illustrations that he's using, that you're reading poetry. But it's poetry about our experiences as we grow older. Just look at the way he describes the aging process. Look at the metaphors he uses. For one, the sun and light and moon and stars are darkened. Clouds return after the rain. There's a, a shadow. There's darkness. It's 
It's not the bright, sunny happiness of youth that we think of, that he thinks of in chapter 11. But it's the language of of darkness and gloom and despair. But not only is there darkness coming, but even things like our grinders cease. Those who look through the windows are dim. The grasshopper drags itself along the almond tree blossoms. He's describing people who what teeth they have left don't work as well, whose eyes aren't as strong as they used to be, whose hair is turning white with age, whose joints and muscles grow weak and stiff and tired and Even the strong man is bent as he moves, as he walks. The preacher recognizes that old age is coming. He sees it and he's afraid of it. He's afraid of what it's going to do to him. It's afraid, he's afraid of, of, of how it's going to change him. You know, you and I are just like that. Just think about all the times, especially when we were younger. Even our kids have kind of said things like, I just, I don't really know what old age holds. And I don't know what that's going to be like. And there's a part of me that's afraid of it. And for that matter, I was in Walgreens just on Thursday. And... There was a magazine. Just just read the cover. Men, be careful. Read the magazine covers and the checkout line at the grocery store. I think it was Woman's World. I'm not really sure because you had to really work to find the title of the magazine. Because the heading was so big and obvious. Reverse aging. Everybody's dream. In many ways... We live in fear of growing older. Many of us are trying to reverse aging. We're trying to avoid the description that that the preacher gives us here in chapter 12. I wonder sometimes if we aren't limited by an under-the-sun view of the world in which we live. There's a part of me that thinks that, that one of the reasons we're afraid of growing older is because, like him, we sort of see that as the end and that's it. And if we limit our observation to between the horizons, if we limit our observation to under the sun, then yes, certainly, Prefer youth over old age. That's his perspective, you remember. He's limited. He's not looking beyond the horizons. He's not looking to see what what the rest of Scripture has to say about old age. For that matter, verses 5 and 6, before the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl broken, the mourners follow your casket to the grave. And in that sense, he's got at least something of a biblical perspective. We return to the dust. The spirit goes to God. That's true for the believer. And yet, 
He's afraid of growing older. Interestingly enough, though, the rest of the Bible doesn't view old age like that. The entire rest of the Bible praises gray hair as a sign of wisdom and experience and life and and long life of walking with God. In fact, even the psalmist celebrates gray hair as a crown of life as evidence of wisdom and understanding and maturity. And yet, the preacher here can only look at old age, can only look at the grave and say, as he has said so many times, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In fact, that's essentially the same verse we read back in chapter 1, verse 2. It's repeated again. It reminds us this has been his view all along. It's that, that word hevel. Uh, it means breath and, and can mean short-lived. You know, you step out on a, on a cold morning and you, you breathe and you can see your breath, but you can't see it for very long. It doesn't hang there long enough. He's using the word to describe not just the short-lived nature of it, but also the fact that it's meaningless. It's pointless. There's no weight or value to that breath. It disappears and it's gone. And there's really no purpose or value to it. He sees old age as vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So what's the solution? If that's what he's afraid of, what's his answer? What's his solution? Well, we see it back in verse 1. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And already you and I have a problem. We have a problem because, in part... We live in 21st century Western American bumper sticker Christianity. We want to just grab something out of the Bible that sounds cool, put it on a bumper sticker, put it on a sign, take it out of its context completely, and put it on the wall of our house and say, there you go. There's my life verse. Okay, Some verses you can do that with. You can't do that with this one. Because notice, even remember your creator in the days of your youth is not a complete thought. You've got to read all the way to the end of verse 7. And that's a pretty big bumper sticker. That's one sentence. And so we take one phrase out and we put that on a bumper sticker and say, look, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Two problems. What does he mean by youth? And then what do I do with remembering? See, when you and I read the word youth, we think before 18 years old, 20, you want to be really generous and call it 25, after that, the word youth disappears. That's not his perspective. Because notice the word right after youth. Before, remember your creator in the days of your youth before all the rest of these other things happen. Which means 
if you aren't described by, verse, by verses 1 through 7, you are described by the word youth. Some of you are learning that you're more youthful than you thought you were based on this passage. And so part of our problem is we think of youth and we want to use that verse and say, see, teenagers, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Now, we don't know what to do with that. We just tell teenagers, remember your creator in the days of your youth. So what do we do with that? Well, it's wrapped up in the word remember. See, we think of remember as a pretty much a purely mental activity. I don't remember where I left my car keys. I, don't re- I didn't remember to do my homework. I didn't remember that I had homework. Honey, do you remember that, how many kids we have? And perhaps do you remember where you left them? That, that, that's remember for us. It's a purely mental activity. It's You call up information, and I remember my times tables. I remember the Pythagorean theorem. I remember. But in the Bible, the word remember, especially if it's used of God, you better be, you might want to put on a seatbelt. Because throughout the Bible, when the Bible says God remembers, he's getting ready to do something. God remembered Noah. It doesn't mean God was flood the earth. Hold on. I got to go do something. Noah forgot. I can't believe I forgot. Noah's been in that ark for 40 days now. I, or for a hundred. God remembered Noah. And the floodwaters started to subside. So remember is actually a call to action. It's not just a call to don't forget. Okay, well then, if I'm supposed to remember my Creator in the days of my youth, how do I do that? What does that look like? Well, there's chapter 11. For one, it means work hard so that you can give to others. Cast your bread on the waters. For you will find it in many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. You and I are called to work, to labor, but in part to do so, so that we can share with others in need. One of the ways we remember our creator in the days of our youth is to work in order to be generous. Look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. The, the farmer who sits at home and watches the weather channel and waits for the perfect forecast to go plow the field and plant the seed or to go out and harvest what he's planted never goes outside. Jim Cantori shows up and he runs the other way. And the urge, the command is don't simply just watch the wind and complain that you never and then never sow. Get out and work. Get out and labor. Because for that matter, verse 
6, In the morning sow your seed, at evening withhold not your hand. You don't know what God will prosper. You don't know what will grow. You don't know how well your harvest will be. One of the ways we remember our Creator in the days of our youth is to work so that we can serve others. Um, Jesus said this a different way. Jesus said this uh, quoting from Deuteronomy when He said, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how Jesus put it. That we work and do so in a way to work diligently towards the good of others. In fact, we've, we've seen that in recent weeks as we've been working through the Shorter Catechism as our affirmation of faith uh, each Lord's Day. And a few weeks ago, we stuck, covered the Eighth Commandment, which tells us to work towards the good of others. To look not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. To guard and protect the material well-being of people around us. You know, maybe we have our investment strategies all wrong. Maybe our 21st century Western American mindset of, of I'm going to go work as hard as I have to for as little as I must and make as much money as I can. And then if I feel like I might have a little cushion, I can give a little bit of it away to some other people. This passage is saying, go out and labor and do so to be a blessing to people around you. This passage says, work hard. The fourth commandment says six days a week so that we can share with others. Now, here's the thing, right? We go, the response is, well, hold on time out. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if I might get hit by a bus tomorrow and I've got to provide for my family. I don't know if um, a storm's going to come through and completely wipe out everything I own and I've got to be prepared for that. So I've got to save and, and protect. Look at the passage. Look at verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. Verse 5, you don't know the way the spirit comes uh, comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So also, just like that, you don't know the work of God who makes everything. We use our lack of knowledge as evidence for why we should not be so generous. The preacher is saying, use your lack of knowledge for evidence for why you should be generous. Because you don't know what's going to come to them either. And you may actually be a blessing to them and provide for them in the days of your youth while you still can work and make money and be a blessing to others. Working hard in the days of our youth so that we can be a blessing to other people, loving our neighbors as ourselves, that doesn't depend on a perfect knowledge of the future. Instead, it reflects a trust in God's sovereignty. But there's another way 
that we can remember our Creator in the days of our youth. Not just to work hard so that we can be a blessing to others, but also rejoice in our youth. Rejoice in the days that God gives us. But the preacher has multiple problems here. First, he points out that the dark days of old age and death are always out there. Verse 8. Let him remember. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But remember that the days of darkness will be many. The days of old age, the days of death. He's counting there even the days after our bodies are laid in the ground. Because remember, he's limited under the sun. He doesn't see life beyond the sun, life beyond the horizon, life in the world to come. Those dark days will be many. All that comes is vanity. So not only are old age and death vanity of vanities, as he tells us, but so too our youth, verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are also vain. Rejoice in the days you have. Rejoice in the days you're given. But even that won't last very long and are meaningless. is, is meaningless. Even that joy, it's better than the option. We answer that way, right? How are you feeling? How are you doing? Well, I'm above the ground. Or I'm, I'm better than I could be. Or I'm better than the other option. That's the preacher's view of life. I mean, rejoice in the days that you have because at least they're days that you have and you might as well rejoice in them and, and there's no good in not rejoicing in them. There's no benefit in grumbling and complaining about them. You might as well rejoice in them because that's the best you've got. His problem is he sees death as the end. The reality is we can answer how are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm better than the option. I'm better than the other option. Are we though? Because in this life, we still deal with sin and its effects on our relationships and on our bodies and on our work and on the ground we try to plant a garden in and all that. And in the other option, in, in the other option there's no dark. There's no night. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. There's no danger. There's no sickness. There's no disease. There's none of that. What if death doesn't get the last word? What if death isn't the end? What if the grave doesn't get the last laugh? then perhaps we should be working 
to be a blessing to others and rejoicing in the days that we have that God has given us to gather more and more people to join us, not just in this life, but in the life that is to come. I want you to notice something. The call to work to be a blessing to others is nothing more than a call to reflect the work of Christ. That's what Jesus did. Jesus took on flesh and lived this life and accomplished our salvation through his obedience and his death on the cross, paying for sin that he didn't commit, but that we did. Why? He didn't do that for himself. He didn't have to. He did it to be a blessing to others. When we talk about the person and the work of Christ, we're talking about the work that he has done for us. To be a blessing to us. So that we might dwell eternally with him. May God grant us the grace to reflect our Savior more and more in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, your obedience to um, accomplish our salvation, your obedience to the Father, your submission to uh, the rule of, of the law of God that you wrote in, in your own life, being subject to, uh, to that law that, that you might earn and gain our salvation through your obedience. And your willingness to go to the cross and suffer and bleed and die and atone for sins that you didn't commit. And we pray uh, even now as we anticipate this uh, Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. That we would reflect more and more on your work so that you might be a blessing to us. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.